0: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Longevity, it's a meaningful term. We'd all like to live a long life if and really if we can live healthy and vibrantly, which is not so easy. You know, a fact, most Americans are plagued by illness the last five to eight years of their lives. There are a lot of fad diets out there and ads for supplements that make claims that they will help you live longer and healthier. But unfortunately, they are for the most part not backed up by scientific evidence. In contrast, my guest today, Dr. Volter Longo is one of the preeminent experts in the world in the field of longevity and whose scientific research has demonstrated a path to a longer, healthier life. Dr. Longo was born and raised in Italy. I know from reading his book, he dreamed of being a musician. Actually, I think he won't mind admitting a rock star, not just any old musician. And somehow, once he got to the United States, when he was in college here, I think in Texas, somewhere along the line, he got this epiphany that maybe he could do more good. And he changed fields from music to biochemistry, which I think his guidance person at college thought he was a little crazy. But for our benefit, he has really actually become a rock star in the field of longevity. Dr. Longo is the director of the USC Longevity Institute and a professor at the Edna Jones Center of Gerontology, and he is the author of the best-selling book, The Longevity Diet. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Volter Longo to the podcast. Well, thank you, thank you for having me. All right, it's my pleasure, Dr. Longo. I want to ask you before I heard of your work, I was familiar with Dan Buettner's work, you know, the Blue Zones, and you know, I think he did a documentary on this where he traveled to various countries that had a higher population of centenarians than in the typical population. I was curious, were you familiar with his work while you were doing your own or did it influence your studies at all? Or was this sort of like independently, you guys were coming through some similar
1: findings? Yeah. So then, first of all, he's a friend of mine. And I've known him for a while. And at the beginning of my book, I talk about the five pillars. And one of the five pillars, which I think is one of the most important is, can we find uh, confirmation for what we observe in the other four pillars, epidemiology, clinical studies, uh, mouse studies, et cetera, can we find a confirmation in the centenarians groups, right? So I've been collaborating for a long time with Craig Wilcox in Okinawa, who's been following with Dr. Suzuki, the, the Okinawans there. So of course, I've been very familiar with the Loma Linda story and Dr. Frazier here. That's your backyard. (laughs) Yeah, so then I was, of course, very familiar with a number of the blue zones, including Sardinia and Calabria, where I come from. But less so about Greece and Costa Rica. So I think that in my book, I did use lots of the things that Dan wrote about because I thought that they fit very well with the rest of the story. But yes, I have to say that I started with Roy Walford back in the early nineties. Right. We'll get to that. It's just interesting. Roy was a big, I mean, the science of calorie restriction going back hundred years, It was the first thing that motivated me. And the second one was genetic of aging, which a small group of us started in the United States in six or seven universities and identifying key genes that regulate aging. Those two things I think really drove my- That drove your research. Yeah, yeah, because Dan
0: was really, he was traveling. He's not a scientist. He was just traveling around. I think it was for National Geographic.
1: They sponsored his work. Yeah, he had one of the most popular thing in history uh, pieces for National Geographic, which covered these lonely areas. And yeah. so then he's done great
0: work. You know what I always love about that? I think I was reading somewhere because I always wondered, why do they call it blue zones? Does it have to do with the water or whatever? And then I heard it had to do with when they saw how long these people were living, they just
1: took a pen and they drew a blue line <laughs> around those areas on the map. But Johnny Pass, who I collaborate with now in Sardinia, and Michelle Poulain, I think it was Johnny Pass that took a blue pan.
0: Oh, yeah. So he's the, the famous blue, yeah. the blue zone guy. Okay. Let me ask you actually one of the areas which I found very interesting in your book that I don't think Dan Bootner even touched on this area was the Ecuadorians. And I want to ask you, because you have a nice picture in there with this very small person. <laughs> you know, It looks almost like a child, but it's a grown adult. And you found something I thought it was interesting that some of these Ecuadorians have a genetic mutation. Something with the growth home receptor. So I wonder if you could explain a little bit for the listeners why this help protects
1: this population from disease or helps them live longer lives. I'll try to make it quick, but just going back really the origin of that. So when we're doing our aging research, genetics of aging, we picked one mutation that was more powerful than all the other mutations, these microorganisms. And there was a mutation in the TOR thoracic kinase pathway. And they made the yeast live very long, very long, and very protected, but made them also dwarf, made them very small. And then uh, John Kapczyk and Andre Barkey were doing work with the mice. And the mice that had the longest lifespan extension, were small, were dwarf. And they had mutation in the growth hormone, right? So then back in the late 90s, actually, I put together the two things. Like the yeast are so long-lived, and the mice have record longevity, There's something about these growth pathways that is regulating the aging process and not just the aging process because I started to find out that the mice were also more protected against diseases. And that's when maybe about 15 years, 16 years ago, we started collaborating with Jaime Guevara, an endocrinologist of Ecuador, looking at the people. Is it possible that the people that have this mutation in the growth hormone receptor, they're also long-lived and protected? And then we published a series of papers showing that they're protected from cancer, they appear to be protected from diabetes. The cognitive decline. And now we're uh, about to submit a paper on cardiovascular disease. So it really is a remarkable parallel with the mouse, right? So the mice, they live 40% longer and health for the mice never develop any disease, which is really incredible. I always say there should be health for the NIH funds spend on that, right? Why is it that they can live longer and not have diseases? But now it turns out that these people seem to have the same phenotype. They certainly don't live 40% longer. But then again, they have a terrible diet. They don't exercise. They drink. So interesting, right? They seem to be living a little bit longer. So they live a little bit longer, really chronic disease-free in the great majority of the cases. So Mm -hmm. extremely uh, important population. Why are the yeast cells so important? You mentioned that in your book a little bit
0: also. I mean, there's such a simple cell in an organism. Why is that important? Is it just because it's easy to study? Is it really have a good correlation. You mentioned something later on too, I think when you took yeast cells and you didn't give them sugar, I think they lived longer versus when they were just given water. Or something or I just, I found it curious, like why yeast cells?
1: Actually, I was working in the pathology department in the medical school at UCLA. And then I went back to the biochemistry department. And the reason was we had no idea. There was not a single gene known to control aging in any mm-hmm. organism. Right. Again, back then, which is a few of us, I think Cynthia Canyon and Tom Johnson and a few other had been working on it for a few years, but yeast was so simple that allowed us to do screens. What does it mean that? It allows us to say, what if I mutagenize every single gene of the 6,000 or the great majority, and then let the yeast tell me which gene is the most important okay, of Okay,
0: so, so you were trying to find the gene because yeast are probably good for that. You're trying to find the gene that... Would explain scientifically why the yeast yeah. or the organism, the mice, eventually again. Because obviously, with every step, it gets more costly doing yeah, I, the I research.
1: When we were working with Walford and people and mice that were calorie restricted, we were completely lost. Like we don't know why. Why is calorie restriction even working? Doesn't right. work. Yeah. And so I think it was obvious that we needed to have mechanisms, right? So. What is it that controls the aging process? Why does a mouse live for two years and a yeast lives for six days and we live for 80 years? What is different? Obviously, it's about the genes, right? But what's so powerful? I always say, why does a mouse start getting cancer at one and a half years of age and lives two and a half years? But no humans get cancer at one and a half years of age, right? So it's obvious that the genetics control everything, right? Including cancer, including... Alzheimer and cardiovascular disease. That's actually a perfect segue because, of course, you know we're all
0: born with a certain set of genes and some people get a little luckier in the lottery of life, others don't. And then you go on to some of what you call your main pillars of the longevity diet. So I'd like to go through a few of those if I could. And I'm going to make some comparison contrast. Listeners of my podcast know I've interviewed a lot of other well-known people, Barry Sears of The Zone Diets. I've interviewed Mark Madison, formerly of the NIH. and people who promoted the Atkins diet. So let's start with what you said I have from your book. One of the first things that you said is that essentially a pescatarian, vegetarian diet, strive for mainly plant-based diet with some fish once or twice a week, which sounds like the Mediterranean diet. So any major differences there and why no meat at all. I think even in the blue zones, they said they can eat meat like five times a month. You know, as a doctor, my vegetarian patients, honestly, I can pick them out in a second. When I do their blood work, their iron stores tend to be very low. Again, how did you come up with that, you know, being more of a fish-based and
1: plant-based diet? So it came out of the five pillars, right? So if you look at the Okinawans, they ate very little meat. They had record longevity for decades and decades. So the Mediterranean diet I think it's got similarities, but it's pretty far, right? I mean, the Mediterranean diet is very permissive. You can eat white meat and even red meat and you can eat uh, lots of different. So this is much more restrictive and it's about like saying, what is it that seems to be causing the records, right? So it doesn't mean that somebody has to go for it, but if you want the record, you probably have to go with something like this, right? If you look at the Mediterranean diet, The meta-analysis will show a 6 to 13% effect on cancer, cardiovascular disease, fairly small, right? Fairly small. It's very good. It's impressive, meaning because it's very consistent. And A, after doing 30 or 40 big studies to still come significantly effective is not easy, right? So the longevity diet does not have that kind of number of studies associated with it. But I will say, if you put it all together, you come up with this. And this is using lots of epidemiological studies, lots of clinical studies, lots of research on the mice and the monkeys, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you look at, for example, the monkeys, right, the calorie study, uh, study lasting 25 years, right? Well, you learn a lot, right? You learn that cholesterol, blood pressure, triglyceride, and fasting, glycemia, all of that is just an invention of diet, essentially, right? So, all of that can be completely controlled by this calorie Now, you also learn that calorie station. Is too extreme. And like you say, do I want to be vegan and be iron deficient, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this is why I always say vegan is not a good idea for most people. Not that you cannot be vegan and be very healthy, it's a job. I was about to say, you're probably familiar with, back in
0: 1994, I actually went out to Dean Ornish's program and I was a young doctor at the time. And I went through the program with all of his heart patients. I was just curious to see what it was like. And I ended up following his program But I'll be honest, I tell this several times on my podcast, I filed it very strictly for about four years. And then I started to get ill. I wasn't supplementing. It wasn't something he emphasized there. And my B12 plummeted. My iron stores plummeted. And it just taught me, I'm not saying you can't be vegetarian, but you got to be really careful. And I'm sure there are certain populations. You talk about this later in the book eat like from where you are from originally type of thing. Maybe there's something to that genetically.
1: I also talk about ages, right? I say after 65, you can start introducing back the meat. Yeah. So I talk about the young people. I say the Mediterranean diet is probably good up to age. Yeah. I say go for the Mediterranean diet. And then in the old people, maybe go back to something similar to the Mediterranean diet. But for the 20 to 65 group, the Mediterranean diet, in this period where you're really under attack, from 72% of Americans being overweight or obese, right? So you cannot say, oh, I'm gonna be on a Mediterranean diet. I think that first of all, you have to be able to be on the Mediterranean diet. And even if you are on the Mediterranean diet, it may not be enough to get you what we've shown, for example, in our epidemiological study with cancer, we showed that the Americans using the enhanced database, the Americans that had up to age 65, They had less than 10% of calories coming from protein. They had a fourfold reduced risk of developing cancer compared to those that had 20% or more. That was the next pill I wanted to go
0: to. And I want, again, the listeners to follow this because there's such a misconception in a lot of the I won't call them fad diets, but the other alternative diets. I mean, there's the Atkins diet, which most people know because they like to think they can lose weight on it. There's the paleo diet. We'll get to the ketogenic diet. And even the zone diet, Barry Sears, I had on the podcast, he said, you should be having a certain amount of protein every meal to steady your blood sugar, and I found it very interesting that you and also your colleague at a little-known university on the East Coast, I think it's Harvard, yeah, David Sinclair, who also says that protein ages you. So is that again something that you're finding that we're really, again, being misled? We thought years ago fat was the enemy. Now we're told sugar and carbs are the enemy. Are
1: we kind of not discussing about protein being the enemy? The enemy is not proteins. The enemy is misinformed people. The enemy is the lack of multi-pillar system. I always say in the courtroom, can you imagine if we try to send somebody to jail based on the fact that they were close to the crime scene, right? Yeah, right. But you were close, <laughs> so it must be you, you know? Yeah. But what do we do? We have you know, lots of evidence, right? You put it together from different pillars. So the courtroom has understood this a long, long time ago. Believe it or not, we don't do that in either, certainly in, in nutrition. So I think, yeah, we need to get their opinion out. And we need to let the, first of all, the real experts, people that spend a long, long time doing this, and it's got to be lots of evidence. It cannot be just epidemiology, by the way, right? Because you can get lots of different answers with epidemiology. But as you put it together with, you know, let's say the genetics of aging, how do I make a mouse live longer? How do I make a monkey live longer? What does calorie restriction do to a human being? You know, on and on and on. At a certain point, you get a pretty good safety picture, like you were saying, very, very important, right? And then you get a pretty good picture of, hey, this is, you're not going to go wrong with this one, right? Yeah. So, so if the Okinawans and the Sardinians and the Calabrians and so many people make it to 100, 110 and higher, using something very similar. I mean, I always remember this lady 104 and I was asking her when you were younger, how many times a week I was there with a French television, how many times a week did you have meat? And she was looking at us and then she understood the question. She started laughing and she's like, yeah, one time we broke into a a wedding and we got some meat. Mm -hmm. So here we were like coming from the future, right? Yeah. And looking at how many times a week do these poor people have meat yeah. once in 30 years, right? So that was their meat consumption. Well, you know what happens too, obviously, we're going to get to the caloric
0: restriction, which again is the elephant in the room and you know the sore point for a lot of people. But what happens is, you know, so many diets, people are hungry. So they're looking for the shortcuts. And again, if you're cutting out sugar, if you're cutting out fat, even let's say whatever it is, you're hungry. So you're going to eat protein and protein does fill you up. But again, what you've shown, and I think Dr. Sinclair has shown that, I guess the protein activates a lot of these inflammatory markers that can be aging. Am I correct in saying
1: that? Or Actually, I can tell you the opposite, you know? Yeah. Protein makes you hungry. Yeah. Okay. You know, pretty soon we and many others can have lots of papers showing exactly really? why. Interesting. Yeah. Protein is one of the worst thing that you can do, or a certain amino acids for weight gain, etc. I think it's people just don't like the complexity, and the complexity is basically saying you need to have a certain amount of protein, and you need to have a certain amount of amino acids, right? So, for example, if you're vegan, you only eat legumes you're going to be deficient in a lot of essential amino acids. Right. And not surprisingly, if you're vegan, your fracture goes up you know, two and a half fold, right? And if you're vegetarian, right. not so much, right? You're a little bit worse, but not so much yeah. worse. Right. If you're vegan, you're much worse. I mean, two and a half fold, that's a huge increase in the risk of getting fractures. I think it was hip fractures. You know, it's hours of discussion of the details. Uh, yeah. So what would you say rule of thumb though? Okay, let's say I'm
0: like 170 pounds. How much protein, if I'm, if I'm getting from plant-based, if I want to use whey protein a little bit instead of I'm not eating as much meat, how much protein a day do you think is
1: adequate or correct? So if you were using animal proteins, this would be probably about 0.7, 0.75, 0.8 grams per kilogram, right? So I think it's 0.37 grams per pound. So that's like recognized as a safe level, especially if you have animal sources of protein in your diet. If you don't have animal sources, then it uh, depends the variety. So if you have, let's say, seeds and nuts and, and legumes in a good balance, you can still do pretty well with the 0.8. Let's say if you just have legumes, uh, then you may have to increase it to maybe one or so just to make sure that you don't lose uh, lean body mass. Okay. Well, let's talk also about fats. Now, again, we
0: all have heard a lot about the bad fats, trans fats, and many people try to cut down on fat, thinking that it makes them fat. Now, again, the Mediterranean diet recommends olive oil, nuts, even fatty fish. But you also say something a little bit different too, that complex carbs, even like whole bread, which is like, (laughs) again, the demonized word, whole bread, and legumes are good also. And again, this takes me back a little bit to Dean Ornish's diet. He was very into the plant-based complex carbohydrate diet. He didn't say about limiting calories though. He wasn't into that. <laughs> he was looking at heart disease. Yeah. So are you sticking by that too, in the sense that you think that it's okay to have a certain amount of
1: obviously the good fats in your diet, which are important? And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that That's also been my problem with some of these more extreme cardiovascular diets. First of all, I'm generally against the diet to prevent one disease, right? Mm -hmm. And that's unless you have a family risk for that disease. Everybody in the family dies of cancer. Yeah, it makes sense to have a cancer prevention diet. Otherwise, I think it should be really about longevity, a longevity diet. What Mm -hmm. is the diet that is most likely to get you to 110 healthy in general? But yeah, fats, you don't see them as much in the Okinawan group. But I think in all the other very lonely people, you see lots of fats or, you know, a a good amount. You know, it doesn't have to be. Certainly you don't see low carb diets and nothing supports a low carb diet for longevity. And you're probably familiar with the Lancet uh, study looking at better to have an 80% carbohydrate diet than a low carb diet for longevity. That's right. Okay, I I wasn't aware of that. With 60% being ideal, right? When you look at how long you're going to live and how healthy you're going to be having the whole bread, having the legumes, et cetera, et cetera, Now, I know you're Italian, so I want to make sure you're not putting a special spin on this. So having pasta
0: and good bread and all that stuff too is okay in moderation?
1: Yeah, not only I don't put a spin on it, but I wrote a book for children diet a couple of years ago in Italy, and I attacked, I called it the 4P problem of Italy, the 5P, one of them was protein. And so it's pasta, pizza, you know, potato, right? So I was attacking and saying, you know, that, People confuse having the right amount with the excess amount. Okay, Having the right amount is not only is perfectly fine, it seems to be gaining people to the longest lifespan. And like the Okinawa, 70% of the calories from sweet potatoes, from purple sweet potatoes. So having lots of carbohydrates of the right kind Based on all the pillars, is clearly the way to go. So
0: my question for you is, and I don't want get too personal,
1: but if you had children, how often would you let them have pizza a month? <laughs> well, like I have pizza once a week, but it's without cheese, lots of healthy ingredients. I put anchovies on top of it, so it can uh-huh. go from a very bad food to excellent food. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so well, I eat the pasta almost every day. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And I eat bread almost every day, if not every day. Wow. My BMI is 22.7. And uh, Wow. I think all my listeners, their ears started to pick up right now. <laughs> like, oh, because again, people confuse. Well, I, when you eat your pizza, is it like a tiny slice? <laughs> oh, no. It, in my book, if your audience reads my book, they'll see that I have a picture. One picture is about how much food I eat and I can advise people to eat, right? So I show that. You know, it's not about, you should eat more, not less, right? So my pizza is actually a big pizza and lots of ingredients. And in fact, I think I have that example, maybe with the pizza, right? They say, if you have lots of cheese, you're going to have a lot of calories and you're going to start getting into the unhealthy zone versus having pasta in Vianella, which is what the Southern Italians had four or five times a week, which is like lots of green beans, lots of vegetables, a little bit of pasta, and a lot of legumes, right, so that's okay. what I call the ideal itch you know so let's talk you know, about I think yeah. people should confuse having regular levels of starches even that make your life easier with having excess starches seventy two percent of Americans clearly have excess starches, right mm-hmm. so when you have lots of rice, too much rice, too much pasta, too much bread, too much pizza, then you get into a unhealthy fat percentage and an unhealthy BMI. That's when you have a problem. Yeah. Let's talk about meals in the day also too, because I found this
0: interesting. You know, you mentioned it in one of the pills eating two meals a day is probably beneficial with a snack. This is in very marked contrast to, again, Barry Sears, who I interviewed, The Zone Diet. He feels people should be eating five times a day to keep their blood sugar stable. And I think someone that you wrote the foreword to in a different book, The Nature's Cure, Andres McKelson, If I liked his book too, he's very interested in the time-restricted eating. And so he says breakfast is the easiest meal to skip for him. And you know he'll have a coffee and then he'll have a lunch and a little bit of dinner. But you say that breakfast is really one of the most important meals. So can you explain that again too, why it's so important?
1: Yeah. I noticed that you use words like this person feel like that. And I'm trying to give an idea. I don't want to really speak no, for no, them. I try to stay away from the way I feel, you know, and focus on what are the facts. For example, the facts okay. are five epidemiological studies showing if you skip breakfast, you're gonna die earlier. Or certainly there is an association between people that skip breakfast and a shortened lifespan, right? What do you think that is? Who knows, right? Yeah, okay. It could be, does it affect insulin resistance? Is there like a counterbalancing effect where the body is now trying to keep maybe the glucose for the brain and it's going to insulin resistant mode? Could it be the heart is getting strained by having too much ketone bodies or too much fatty acids all the time? I don't know, nobody knows. But certainly we have to pay attention to multiple pillars instead of I think feeling or or having ideas and having almost everything. Do changed. you support, though, that time restricted eating, that whole thing of eating in a certain window from your research? I support the 12 hours. I always say I've never seen any negative data about 12 hours. Okay. 12 go to 14, 16 hours, you start seeing gallstone formation, gallbladder operation, shortened lifespan. So that's not like new territory.
0: This is really important to know. And I'm glad you're bringing this up because we're going to get to this when we go a little more detail about your fasting mimicking diet, because people need to know there are so many people out there that are doing all these fasts, even patients of mine. You know, I practice in New York City and I'll talk to some patients. I don't know if they've read your work or somewhere else. They go, I'm doing my keto diet and I'm fasting now for a few days. And I'm like, I don't think a lot of them really realize there's dangers in doing this stuff if you don't really know what you're
1: doing even if you do know what you're doing, right? Because if you look at low carbohydrate diets, you will never guess, you know, after three months, the doctor is gonna say, you look great. You may have reduced fatty liver. You may have reduced abdominal fat. You may have reduced cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. Well, but then the question should be, are you gonna live longer and healthier? And the answer is no. (laughs) So so that's why- (laughs) You look great, but you may not make it till next week. (laughs) Yeah, the the operation was a success and the patient died. Right, exactly, right. I think it's important to say, yes, the doctor can use that. Is it a good tool? Yes. I mean, maybe let's say alternate day fasting or a ketogenic diet. It could be tools that you can use to get somebody to where they need to be, say a couple of months. Right. Because they may allow the person to get there, but then you have to get them on a health span diet okay you cannot keep them and things that are clearly associated with shortened lifespan
0: what about i find this interesting too about eating a food similar to your ancestors i guess this supposedly this makes sense but except for if possibly your ancestors died at an early age or my other question to you was let's say like an italian or a jewish new yorker if they like chinese food is that like a bad idea
1: well, first of all, my uh, recommendation was never about following your grandparents. And people always say, Oh, this is a New York Times journalist, always say that. I said, No, I never say that. I said, You got to find among the things that we discuss in the longevity diet, find the ones that your grandparents ate, not eat like your grandparents. It's a very different story, right? Completely different. So yeah, lots of grandparents had a terrible diet. And so don't follow your grandparents' diet. Go all the way back. Go back yeah, generations. Say, you know, vegetables. Well, what kind of vegetable did my grandparents eat, right? So what kind of legumes did they eat? Right. So that's very important. Why? Well, if you look at lactose intolerance, that already gives you an answer. So if your grandparents were from Norway or lots of places of Northern Europe, they probably drank a lot of milk and they were not lactose intolerant. If your grandparents were from Japan, almost guaranteed there was high levels of lactose intolerance. So by saying, I'm going to just match my grandparents within the domain of the longevity diet, and they didn't drink milk from cows, and I'm not going to drink milk from cows. Now, can you eat Chinese food? Is that going to be bad for you? If you're Not necessarily. I think, you know, if the ingredients are the correct one, it doesn't really matter if it's Chinese food or Italian mm-hmm. or South American. But if you're starting to see lots of ingredients that, let's like say, soy, well, lots of people are allergic to soy, Yeah. Are sensitive, allergic, intolerant. Yeah. So then if you start noticing that you're not feeling so well, and you're originally from Germany, maybe soy is something you should pay attention to. And maybe soy is something that you should think of eliminating, right? So I think that that's the reasoning behind this. Look at your grandparents and match them with the longevity diet. The last thing I'm going to ask you before we go to the fasting, mimicking diet is about
0: supplements. And you know, again mentioning David Sinclair at Harvard, it's interesting. He says in his book, The Lifespan." He says I can't do this restricted eating, even though he does say that he only eats once a day. So I think he is restricting his eating, but he obviously put a big focus on supplements. You know, he's big on Reservatrol, NMN, stuff like that too. I don't remember you talking a lot about that. In your book, is that something that you just haven't really focused on? Do you think that's not nearly as powerful as the restricting of the fasting-mimicking diet before we get into the fasting? I mean, just to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, I've known David for 25 years, and he has done really good work with uh, resveratrol and other sirtuin-activating drugs. I think that my book has been, and all my books have been about things that we know and things that we can go back 100 years for that are matching the new science, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean there could not be certain things. For example, now near Barzilla is looking at metformin. David is looking at the, right. the certain activity drug. So it doesn't mean that eventually we're not going to say, wow, this is great. This drug is great. But I would say if you recommend something, I think you need to have a lot more than so many years of, you know, let's say one pillar evidence. And so I would say that we're still in the very, very beginning of understanding what the effect of some of these drugs are when you take it for 60 years, right? So then that's what you got to look at. If you're telling a 30-year-old, you're going to take this supplement every day, you're basically potentially saying you're going to be taking it for the next 60, 70 years. Is Mm -hmm. that going to be good? You know, and I have an example in the book about vitamin C, you know, and I have, I talk about if somebody got a PhD in oxidative chemistry, I say, well, you know, vitamin C, it's a little bit like if you were taking a symphony and you're trying to take a cello and say the cello maybe is the most beautiful, best sounding instrument right. in the orchestra. So I'm going to add a cello or I make the cello player play a little bit louder, right? And my point is, if you look at life, and this is why the conservation between organisms is so important, it's so sophisticated, the regulation of longevity. And now, anything you throw in there, unless it's a program, it's a very sophisticated program. So I say, to make the symphony better than Mozart symphonies, you'll have to be better than Mozart, right? So you have to come in, understand the symphony, and rewrite it in a way that is even better. You cannot just make the cello louder, right? So I think vitamin C is making the cello louder. So, yes, it can reduce oxidative stress, but let's look at cancer. What are most chemotherapy drugs using to kill cancer cells? Oxidative stress. What about the immune system? Are neutrophils killing bacteria? Oxidative stress. So, you see that it's very easy to get into a problem zone like, well, why are you blocking oxidative stress? But that's what the immune system uses to kill cancer cells, right? That's a great why are you blocking point. Blocking that. And so the lack of sophistication worries me, right? This is why I say use these 3 billion years of R&D for now. So use what we <laughs> already developed for the sake of making you long live. And then eventually, 50 years from now, yes. I'll we'll do the, the fine tuning. I
0: see what you're saying. Get the car on the road and then we'll do a little bit of fine tuning. And, you know.
1: Well, I'm saying use, let's say, protein restriction. Why is protein restriction making mice live longer, very consistent? Well, probably because proteins are at the center of the signal to these genes that tell the organism, am I ready for growth and reproduction or not? And if I'm not ready for growth and reproduction, then I stand by. But if I stand by, I cannot afford to age. So that's the beauty of looking at the systems that have been there for that purpose of making you live longer. So if you take a yeast, right? You were asking me earlier about yeast. If you take a yeast, it's got three different modes. It's got one mode where it lives a couple of days. It's got one mode where at least two weeks, two to three weeks, and it's got one mode where at least two years. So, or the worker bee and the queen bee, right? So then you're asking, well, go from two days to two years—that's hundreds of fold difference. How's it possible? And then you have to ask, is it possible that human beings have mode B or C? Maybe we're not going to live a hundred times longer, but what if we could just live thirty percent longer, right? Is it feasible, is it reasonable that we will have a plan B that makes us 30% longer lived and much healthier? Absolutely. Not a hundredfold, but 30% yes. And that's what we're saying. Utilize that very powerful evolutionary program that puts you in a standby zone where, okay, you're gonna be highly protected. And we already know, I mean, otherwise, Could de LaRon, these little people we follow in Ecuador, never get any disease? Is it just a coincidence that happens to be the same mutation in the mice and very similar to the yeast? It's just too many coincidences. And I will argue that I would put my money on this 30% being reasonable, being achievable, but being achievable, sort of listening what I say, being in tune with evolution, understanding where we come mm-hmm. from, where this lifespan regulation comes from. I have another
0: question too. I've always thought about this a lot.
1: It's obviously on a sad
0: topic, but one thing that always sort of intrigued me also was whenever I would see like stories about Holocaust survivors, to me, I guess I was always shocked when a lot of them, being through such a traumatic thing, physically and emotionally, a lot of these people you know, who survived lived into their 90s. I mean, I hear so many, you know, like when you hear obituaries or stories, do you think also that when people even go through this for a period in their life, it has long lasting consequences? Has anybody looked at that? Like with
1: prisoners of war or anything like that? Yeah, I think uh, Caleb Finch and Eileen Crimmins in my department have looked at that. And the potential problem with that is the filtering effect, right? So now you have, you know, a million people and now you select the, uh, the 1,000 or 10,000 that are the strongest, right? Because, of course, mm-hmm. the concentration camps will have that effect. That's but right. very high selective effect, right? So, yes, yeah, so that's the only issue there. Yes, maybe they live longer, but is it because of the say, epigenetic changes that could occur in those years of the concentration camp, or is it because you know, but it selected the one in a thousand that was the strongest and able to survive? Yeah, that's
0: the- what I always wonder. I mean, it was the mental fortitude, or was it the physical or combined physical and mental fortitude. I mean, it just it's striking to me because again, some that I've met in my lifetime and some of them, especially mentally, so sharp. Just, I say to myself, anybody who went through that, how could they not deteriorate as they age,
1: let alone do better than their contemporaries? So it was just something that was- and The question is, we're, could you take anybody and push them in that direction? Let's say, of course, not that much, but will anybody be changed in a way that make them live longer? Or is it more that, if you take a lot of people within the lot of people, there is a few- the survivors. That are gonna have that ability to get through it and survive, yeah? So that's yeah. the big difference, right? Because in yeah. one case, you can apply it to everybody. In the other case, it's like, okay, if you're strong, you're strong and you're gonna live forever no matter what. And you happen to also survive the concentration camp. Yeah.
0: I'm going to get to the last part of our talk, which is probably the most important for so people listening, is your groundbreaking work on the fasting mimicking diet. And I'm going to hold up here. This is a package. Because I purchased one of your kits. You know, yeah, my the, kids, uh, the company kits. I the company kits, the which I know that goes to research, right? And my uh, part, I don't make a penny out of any of these. I know, I know you but don't. You, the company does. And hopefully, I think you said that they donate to research. So I want to ask you a few things about this, the ProLong kits. People may want to go online and decide after reading your book that they want to do this. What is the difference, though, Dr. Longo, yours versus, let's say, Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers or NutriFast, where they have drinks? I don't mean to insult you, but I mean, obviously, I know you've done the scientific work, but a lot of them are. For what I can tell, I've never been on any of them. <laughs> Maybe I should. That they seem to all be very portion controlled. You I mean, I know with Weight Watchers, you just always hear people say, oh, I used up my points today. I can't you know, eat any more food. And looking at your packet, it's interesting because again, there are some different days when you have more calories than others. And they tend to be on the low side anyway. Like, 1,100 calories is like a fairly generous day. And I noticed also, again, not to... Be negative, but like one of these, like these soups, there's like 730 milligrams of sodium. So, I guess my question to you, and I'll let you take it from here because you're the expert. How did you design this from basically obviously using your research guy to make this more clinically useful or useful for everyday people?
1: This is the result of really 30 years of work with some of the world leading experts in longevity and also a lot of clinicians. The idea was. I knew that from the Walford studies and lots of other studies, that calorie restriction, continuous calorie restriction, could have all these benefits and all these problems, right? So then basically, we said, if you could get the benefits of calorie restriction, blood pressure, glycemia, as I was saying earlier, it would revolutionize medicine, right? No doubt about it, right? But you can't because basically, you have to make somebody anorexic and extremely thin to do it. So then, for 30 years, I've been saying, well, There's gotta be a way that you get all the benefits without any of the problems. And I think I wanna stay very far away from weight loss companies, which is, uh, I think, a very different category from what we're talking about. Well, you have to differentiate it though, because what I'm asking
0: you, because again, people say, you know, why can't I follow Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers when they're limiting my calories? They have a program, I get this amount, and you're more
1: scientific, but it looks to me like- This this is not just to be a bit more scientific, you know? This again, we're talking apples and oranges here. Right? Okay, we are basically running clinical trials in thirty different hospitals. We've done the epidemiological studies. We're in one of the leading centers in the world for aging research, and the oldest one. We, you know, we give PhD in the biology of aging. No, I, and, I know you're the, I, mean, one, the so, best. I think with everything, with everything, you have to know who you're talking to, right? So you don't want to say, oh, why should I listen to Doctor So and So? when I could just have my grocery store person, he knows a lot about medicine. I'm just going to listen to him. So I think that you get started with that, right? What are we talking about? Is it Harvard School of Public Health or is it my next door neighbor? And then you have to look at what is the foundation that went behind this? Is it like genetics of aging, epidemiology, centenarian studies, or is it, you know, I'm trying to make money. So those are very different worlds. Now, if you go into the technical aspects, of course, it'll take a couple of weeks. You know, I have a From my foundation, I gave, we have master classes, and it takes about 13 hours to explain what you asked me, right? But I say, if I have to make it very quick, it's about, we don't want, whether it's the salt in there or anything that is in there, we're trying to get people to not change their diet. Very different from a lot of people, even if you just think about the weight loss issue. We're not trying to change the diet. We're trying to reset the system in those five days so that the liver fat, the abdominal fat, is activated. The breakdown, the catabolism of fat is activated. There is a probably a, an epigenetic change. So that you get into a okay. fat burning mode yeah. without losing muscle mass, right? And also without endangering the patient. So the salt, why is there a lot of salt? Well, because if you're in a hospital, they give you salt in the PBS solution. So we wanna make sure that especially when the calories are low, the patient have enough salts in the circulation. This is not to say that we want them to have a high salt diet the rest of the time. That's a really good point. It's interesting, again, I just wanted to bring it up like with Dr. MacAlson
0: in Germany, it's interesting. I think a lot of times they admit people to like a facility when they're
1: doing period of fasting? Most fasting doctors will not do fasting unless you enter a facility that is specialized in fasting practice. So
0: this is so important too, because again, so many people who are listening and, and people who are doing these things to try to lose weight, maybe get healthier, that uh, yeah, I wanted to bring out the point that you got to really know what you're doing is potentially dangerous. And can you talk about too, how people should transition in and out? Let's say, cause you may say, depending on your health, you should do your fasting mimicking diet program like five days out of the month. And that could be maybe two months out of the year or three months, depending on the person's medical condition. How does somebody also go from those five days to transition back to your way of eating we talked about earlier?
1: First of all, there should be a dietitian or a physician that is an expert in nutrition involved. It doesn't mean that they got to be involved all the time, but they should be involved at the beginning to assess and apply. Yeah. So I think it's a combination, right? Some people will say, I cannot tell the results, but we just compared the Mediterranean diet with once a month fasting-making diet, right? So we're about to publish that. So does the Mediterranean diet have advantages if if you do it all the time? Yes. The longevity diet is probably going to even have more advantages, but lots of people are going to say either I don't want to do it, Or I could do it for three or four months, but then I can't do it for more than that. So then it's pointless, right? And this is really the big failure of nutrition around the world that is trying to impose diet that people don't want to do on people. So it's better not to do it at all, right? And that includes these long fasting periods. You do a yo-yo, right? So you're going to lose 20 pounds if you do a month of fasting and then you're going to gain 20 pounds. This is very well established. So we're trying to say, how do you intervene? And for some people, a very gradual, I always say, if you're going to lose weight with a diet, it should be a two-year process, not a two-month process. It should be a slow two-year process. And we always start at the clinics or the foundation clinics, we always start with what do you eat? What do you like to eat? We never start with, here's what you should eat. I tell you. It's like, no, you tell me what makes you happy, what you can live with for the rest of your life, potentially. And then we start by saying, oh, could you get rid of this? No, I can't, you know? So that's another point. Then you decide how much fasting you making diets you give them. So, you know, potentially, maybe once a year or twice a year. Have you ever tried also where it was,
0: you know, a lot of religions, sometimes just one day, like a 24-hour Type of fast where they'll do sometimes a few times a year, whether it's Muslim, Jewish, I don't know, Catholic. Is that
1: too short? Yeah, again, we go with the science. So I think one day is not enough to get the ketogenic, ketogenic process going. The, you know, the fatty acid production is not enough to get uh, any autophagy almost at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on and on and on. You know, the breakdown of white blood cells and the turning on the stem cells. So lots of the things we're now investigating clinically. They very clearly occur in mice, need a much longer time. That's why we go where the science drives us. But that doesn't mean that, you know, there couldn't be other things that are useful, right? So it's one day a week useful. Maybe it's useful. Maybe it's going to make your life shorter, right? If you look at breakfast, (laughs) if you look at breakfast, skipping, nobody will have guessed, including me. I will never tell you that if five studies, including our own, will show breakfast, you live shorter or... Let's not say that it will associate skipping breakfast right, right. with so lifespan. I would never have that. Guessed. Really threw me. Also, as I said, that's why your work is so
0: important because again, you can read so many books, quote from experts and everything, and they tell you ten different things. But the bottom line is, studies essentially don't lie. And if you ever can understand why a result is coming. That's
1: obviously the most important thing. Yeah, but it cannot be a study, right? And this is what lots of people do. You pick a study or two, and then you make yeah, right, right, right. It cannot be that. You have to have like a thousand studies. Right. Well, that's epidemiology. Epidemiology. Put it together. You Get a common denominator, and you say, Okay, this is what's in common between all well, right. The, I agree with uh, you, the Loma Linda people. And at a certain point, say, How could you possibly come up next week or next year and change all of this? This is 100 years of work, you can't change it by saying, Oh, you know, right? You right, study came out. and that's really the biggest lesson of all is like, if nothing else, pick somebody if you're not going to pick me. Pick somebody that is really a multi-pillar approach to what they come up with. And a very serious one, mathematical one, is the data in each one of these pillars backed up by statistics. And if it is, then it's very, very unlikely that next week is going to change and somebody's going to come up with something better. Somebody could come up with something better, but I'm saying it's going to probably be a stepwise small improvements. At some point, we're going to make those. It's not like we got it all figured out and nothing else is going to make it better. But it's unlikely that somebody's going to revolutionize this and say, oh, forget this. You should go this way instead of that. Yeah. I'm going to end with something. And it was interesting because I think Leslie Stahl did a
0: piece for 60 Minutes. I can't remember if it was a year or two ago. It was on a couple of different centers, but I think they focused on the Loma Linda Center because they have, as you know, they have the high population of centenarians. And what was really amazing about the piece that she did was that you see these people in their 90s, living sometimes in assisted living, some on their own, but they were going to social functions. They were dancing. They were having their glasses of wine a lot of them physically active. And I guess- some. These are stories, you know, on television. No, like- no, I know, I know. But I'm bringing out a point. This is the reason I'm ending on this. It's something else that you said, it caught me because it touched my spiritual side. Like you said something, in, I have it here on page 17 in your book. You said that altruistic yeast cells, I'm not sure how they're altruistic, <laughs> but altruistic yeast cells outlived the more, quote, selfish yeast cells. So do you think- Again, I mean, diet is one aspect of longevity that is just, again, one component of it versus these other components of socialization, activity, and also maybe feeling like that you have a higher purpose, that you still have something to do in this world, so that's why you need to be around.
1: It doesn't look like that, right? So I mean, to do the right things, you need to want to do the right things, right? To live long, you need to want to live long. If you decide when you're 36 that you don't want to live anymore, you're not gonna be a centenarian, so that's for sure in there. But when you look at centenarians, you see something very interesting. You see some of them that love to stay in groups and have all these connections and all these links to social activities and church, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you see the ones that are the exact opposite, you know. So I followed the Emma Morano, she's 117, the third oldest person who ever lived, and she's a loner. Oh, interesting. You know, she's a fighter, you know, she's basically saying, I don't care, you know, I'm just mm. gonna keep going. And so I think that we like the stories, and everybody. Okay, sometimes we, we do. Yeah, you know, look,
0: I'm an introvert too. I like your last story because if I had to be out in the woods reading a book, whatever, till I'm 110,
1: it wouldn't be so bad. But you know, <laughs> I always miss a party. <laughs> yeah, obviously, it's good, right? If people can have social interaction, et cetera. Et cetera that's certainly going to make it easier to get to 100. But it's not a requirement, so I also wanted to make sure that people that don't have that don't feel like I'm doomed because I don't have this and I must do that to live long. And I talk about that in the book, you can find the joy in a piece of chocolate, you know, or lots of other things. I mean, Emma Morano was like waiting for the cake that we used to bring her. They made their day, right? So so that she could eat cake. Yeah. So I think that the nutrition is driving the genes that are driving the, uh, and it makes sense, right? In evolution, food is really driving everything, right? And even sex and even reproduction, right? So that's how essential food is. So it makes sense that nutrition will be extremely powerful in controlling the genes that they control the aging process and the diseases, by the way. That's a great way to end. Dr. Longo,
0: I appreciate it. I know you're so busy taking the time to do this podcast. I think you've educated so many of us and your research and your work is fascinating. So I look forward to your next book and thank you again for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at
1: deanmitchellmd.com.